Uh, Galatians uh, chapter 6 is a, is a passage that uh, every few years I come back to this one, and uh, I, I wanted to look at this today. If you'd like to open a Bible, uh, Galatians is about halfway through the New Testament, and the passage in, your, uh, in these brown Bibles is page 1132. Uh, about seven and a half years ago, uh, this man died, uh, Bill Bright. Uh, he was a very, very important man in the history of Christianity in America. Uh, his name was William R. Bright. He was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, which is the world's largest Christian ministry. Many people don't know that. Uh, when he died, he was 81 years old. And I want to mention this because uh, many, many in First Presbyterian Church and in many other churches have been affected by the ministry of Campus Crusade for Christ in one way or the other. Now, Bill Bright had been a, uh, a businessman. His family owned a candy company called Bright's Fancy Foods. And he, he described himself when he lived in California as a happy pagan before coming to faith in Christ in 1947. And he told of how God gave him the vision for Campus Crusade the day after he and his wife, Vinette, in their Christian commitment, made a commitment of all their possessions. They said, Lord, we want to give you everything we have in order to see the world evangelized, to see the world reach for Christ during our lifetime. So they began this ministry called Campus Crusade uh, in 1951, and it began as a ministry to college students on the campus of UCLA. Now, they had been doing some evangelistic work at UCLA with very nominal results. It just wasn't much happening. And then in 1951, uh, a prayer chain, a 24-hour prayer chain, was started in several churches in the city of Los Angeles for that ministry at UCLA. And so they took the day, the 24-hour day, and divided it into 96 15-minute periods, and then people would uh, commit to pray during those 15 minutes around the clock for the campus ministry there. Following the beginning of the prayer movement, in the very first evangelistic meeting that they had in a sorority house, over half of the women present indicated that they wanted to put their faith in Christ as their Savior. And then other evangelistic meetings followed in fraternities, sororities, athletic teams, and similar responses occurred. So it's obviously a what we would call an awakening was taking place on that campus. By the end of the first year, over 250 students uh, had professed faith in Christ. And uh, as an added gift, the, uh, the campus chimes began uh, playing hymns at noontime. That had never happened there, not in any recent history before that. So Bill Bright had a passion, and that was to present the love and claims of Christ to, quote, every living person on the planet. He spent more than five decades building and leading uh, Campus Crusades ministry, which uh, started out in San Bernardino, California, and, and ended up in Orlando. He was so motivated by what is known as the Great Commission, which is Christ's command to carry the gospel throughout the world and to make disciples of all nations, that in 1956 he wrote a little booklet called The Four Spiritual Laws. How many of you all have ever seen that booklet? Okay, yeah, so most of us. When it was first written, it had a white cover, uh, now it's more kind of a mustard, <laughs> mustard color on the, on the front of that little booklet. 
uh, that little, uh, he wrote the booklet, and it since then has been printed in 200 languages. It's been distributed to more than 2.5 billion people. That is the most widely distributed religious booklet uh, in history. The Campus Crusade, at the time of his death, served people in 191 countries. They had a staff, a full-time staff of 26,000. They had trained more than 225,000 volunteers who were working in some 60 different niche ministries. And all that went back to UCLA and the college ministry. But by the end, uh, or by the time he died, they were in military ministry, inner city outreach, all sorts of ministries. In 1979, Bill Bright commissioned the Jesus Film Project. And it's a feature-length documentary on the life of Christ, primarily taken from the book of the Gospel of Luke. Uh, in 1981, uh, when, when he died, and I'm sorry, 2003, when he had died, that film had been viewed by, almost, by over 5 billion people in 234 countries. Uh, it is the most widely viewed, most widely translated film in history. Over 800 languages that film's been translated into. In 1996, he was presented, Bill Bright was presented the prestigious Templeton Prize for Progress in Religion, which brings with it prize money of a million dollars. It's the world's largest financial annual award for uh, a, a prize like that. Uh, he and his wife donated all that prize money to causes promoting the spiritual benefits of fasting and prayer. One of his longtime, lifelong friends was Billy Graham. Billy Graham said about him, he carried a burden on his heart as few men that I've ever known, a burden for the evangelization of the world. Graham went on to say he was a man whose sincerity and integrity and devotion to our Lord have been an inspiration and a blessing to me ever since the early days of my ministry. In an interview about two years before he died, he had a, uh, a lung disease that, that was a, sl a long, slow death. And so he, he saw the end long before the end came, just knowing that that disease eventually would take his life. He was interviewed a couple of years before he died, and he said, A Christian cannot lose. If we live, we go on serving Christ. That's an adventure. And if we die, we're in heaven with him. And then that's incredible. <clears throat> now, um, I, my, my perspective, why I would take the time to mention him, is not to try to over-glamorize uh, the ministry of Campus Crusade or, or Bill Bright, uh, but uh, to talk about a legacy. Uh, he, he left a legacy that's represented in, in really millions of lives around the world. But the truth is, all of us leave a legacy. Now, a legacy is different from an uh, inheritance. The definition in the dictionary of a legacy is something received from an ancestor or predecessor from the past. But it's more intangible, like beliefs and values and attitudes about others and about life and about what is more important. That's what we think of with a legacy of how that person has influenced us that now is gone. So I want to just ask you a question today and then try to answer it, try to urge you to do something, and that is, what legacy are you leaving? And the question is not just for those that are parents or even grandparents or great-grandparents, but for all of us, because more important than the legacy we receive is the legacy that we leave. Now, I believe that, that this uh, passage in, in Galatians 6 um, 
can help us leave a good legacy. Let me give you a little bit about the background. The Apostle Paul wrote it. He was the greatest missionary in the ancient world, if not in all time. He was concerned about the gospel and the personal salvation of sinners, and he dealt with with much of the same thinking like we have today. Uh, He dealt with people thinking that if a person cleans up their life, if they live a certain way on the outside, then everything is okay on, uh, on the inside. But God says it's what's on the inside that matters, your heart. And if that's right with God, then that will change what happens on the outside. Conversion, we refer to that, where we are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. So Paul in Galatians is describing a life filled with the Holy Spirit. And he's saying how to live a, quote, spirit-filled life. And so he begins earlier in the, uh, the book, before chapter 6, giving instructions on how to restore a brother who's committed sin. Then he adds a second example of, of following the Spirit through humble service. And then he says in verse 6, Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Uh, Then he encourages the church to persevere in well-doing in view of the judgment. Let me just say this. This isn't in my notes, but we we often, about verse 6, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Probably those of us who teach publicly, don't apply that like we should because it sounds like there's a vested interest. You need to, when someone teaches you the scriptures and God uses it in your life, affirm that teacher. You don't have to worry whether they'll get the big head. We're, we're shot at all the time. I can promise you there's plenty enough coming from criticism that it's not that you're one comment of, uh, of an expression of gratitude or whatever, or just to let someone know that God used that. Uh, in, in, in your life in some way. I, you're, not, you're not saying you're the best teacher in the world or you're a tremendous preacher, but just to say, you know, God used what you said. Uh, any of those of us that teach, that's why, we're, that's why we do this. That's the whole purpose. And so uh, I, I appreciate that this passage starts off with that. The one who receives instruction in the Word should share all good things with their instructor. That, that's, that's one application. There are others from that. Well, now in, the, in verses 7 and following, he He's encouraging believers, those in Galatia and and those of us here as well, to persevere in well-doing in view of the judgment. So let's look at the text. In verse 7 he says, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever man sows, this he reaps. He will also reap. Uh, Those who help the fallen, this came earlier in the chapter, and share with the minister of the word, they sow in the spirit, but they'll reap eternal life, whereas those who do not do those things sow to the flesh and are counted as mockers of God. Now, he's not talking about salvation by works, um, but he's talking about the transformative work of the Spirit in a believer's life. And so reaping, the, the, the analogy of reaping is a figure, a frequent figure in Scripture for the judgment in Scripture, and this seems to be in Paul's mind as he's pressing upon the church their calling to continue in loving service to one another. So it's an encouraging, if not an awe-inspiring thought, that, that as we move, as believers move toward the day in which we will reap eternal life, that we cannot ignore God. No one can. A person will harvest exactly what they reap. I'm sorry, will harvest what they sow. 
There's a little children's book called Seeds. Anyone here ever heard that saying that it's a little tiny book called Seeds? Well, I'm going to tell you the content of the book. It's only about three sentences. Here's what the little book says. First you pull the weeds, then you rake and hoe, then you plant some seeds, that's the way you sow. Just you wait and see. Everyone will know what you planted when they've started to grow. Every plant has little seeds that make others of its kind. Apple seeds make apple trees. They'll do it every time. Seeds make flowers, scrubs, and trees. Seeds make ferns and vines and weeds. What, is plant, what you plant is what you grow, so be careful what you sow. <laughs> now, that's good theology. I don't think that was the intention of the, the author of the little children's book. But the Bible says what you sow, you will reap. And many of us know that principle very well. We know the principle very well, don't we? The Bible says harvest is coming. It is coming. It's certain. It will happen. Now, we have trouble understanding that because we're, especially it seems like the younger people are, the more they are attuned to immediate gratification and, and, and not waiting. And they, they don't know what it's like uh, to wait, uh, long, really wait. I don't mean moments or a few minutes, but hours or days or weeks or months. And uh, we're used to immediate results. But let me show you something. And that is that the principle of sowing and reaping is that there is a large time gap between when you sow and when you reap. Now that, that's what we tend to forget. Do not expect that your reaping will be done today with the seeds you sow today, but you will reap what you sowed. For example, here's a, here's a farmer, and he has sown the seed, um, but he does not give a report on the day he sows it. I mean, would, wouldn't it be absurd if a farmer sows a seed, and that very afternoon he goes out and comes back into the house, and they say, well, how's the harvest? Well, nothing's happened. It's been a complete failure. I put the seed out this morning, and and it's still, (laughs) nothing's grown. I was camping with a a fellow who is a, uh, with our sons when they were young, and he is a a counselor, all sorts of, counsels people about all sorts of things. And he's a very good counselor, but we were friends. We were in the same church, and we were out, we had the tent set up, we were in the state park, and and he said, the thing about it, he said, most parents is they never realize what they have till their kids hit junior high school. <laughs> it's funny. That's the one thing I remember from that whole camping trip. He said, you don't realize what a child's going to be till they hit junior high school. And so a lot of us, I can look out usually at a, in a sanctuary, and I can pick out the people who have high school age kids. If they're there, they're usually wide-eyed and look like they're in shock, you know. And the others that look worse are those that have kids in college when they're home for the summer. That's when they think, oh, it's blissful. Oh, Johnny's coming home. Then you realize he goes out at 11 p.m. and comes in at 4 a.m. And so, you know, it's a, sorry, some of y'all know what I'm talking about with that. But we have to, as one application for parents, we have to realize the far-reaching impact you will have on lives. Uh, and it's true, tens and hundreds and thousands of people can be affected in the future for good or for bad. Um, and we tend to focus on the bad cases, but let me tell you about the good ones. Joe White runs Canna Camps in Missouri. Um, 
not that many people in Georgia have heard of Canacut camps, but they, they train Christian leaders from all around the country every summer and have been doing so. They draw about 5,000 kids to those camps from all over the all over the country each summer. And the vast majority of those students that come, they come from Christian homes, where two-parent Christian homes. Uh, Joe surveyed more than 1,000 of those kids that come to camp, and he found some encouraging things. Of, of those who came, it said 95% of the boys say their father, fathers regularly tell them, I love you. 98% of the girls say their mothers tell them regularly, I'm proud of you. Uh, 91% of the kids say their parents play games with them. Um, 97% of the boys say they get hugs from their dads. 100% of the girls say they get hugs from their dads and moms. Uh, They talk about, they recall stories being read to them. Their father's doing things with them, like going fishing. 100% of the girls say their parents have taken them to Sunday school. He said it's no coincidence of those same kids when he surveyed them that, that more than 80% of those kids said they are against premarital sex, 92% don't use illegal drugs, and most of them don't drink alcohol. Now, <clears throat> we tend to think of the bad things and not think of the positive influence. John Maxwell is a guy, he, he was a pastor, but he really moved more in leadership circles. They have a ministry out of Atlanta called Enjoy. And he writes books on leadership, secular books with Christian influence. And I heard him tell once how he and his brother, he had a brother, and they grew up and their dad was a minister. And uh, he and his, his brother was far from God, at least when he told this story. And there they were, two adult men, they were out playing golf. And they came up to, uh, to tee off on a particular hole, and, they, and, and he had asked his brother, said, how... How are you doing these days with God? And he, he told him. He said, I'm, just, I'm, I'm far from God. I'm not interested. And he, and he got set up to hit his, to, to tee off, and he turned around, and he looked at John, and he said, but I can't get away from the prayers of mom and dad. <laughs> and then they went about their, what they were doing. Isn't that something? The influence. He just, knowing that guy, knowing that his father and his mother were praying for him. Here's this man, I guess, in his 30s when this took place. If you're committed to... Leave a godly legacy, I think you have to be committed to at least three things. Um, And the first one I want to mention is you have to be committed to your own personal spiritual growth. Verse 8, how are we doing on time? Okay. Verse 8 says, The one who sows to his own flesh shall from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit shall from the Spirit reap eternal life. To sow to the flesh means to let the old nature have its way. Uh, to sow to the Spirit means to submit to the Holy Spirit to have His way in your life. So primarily the harvest is speaking of the afterlife. Uh, but the most significant thing we can do is to be involved in the process of intentionally growing in the knowledge of, of Christ as our Redeemer. To read God's Word, to pray. To seek to grow to maturity. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak of perfection in this life, but it speaks of progression. That, that we are making progress in that knowledge. And I think if you and I are to leave a generation behind, if we're to leave any kind of legacy, then we must be committed to our own walk with Christ. Now, I want to tell you something I'm not real proud of, but I, devotional life has been my Achilles heel from the day I came to Christ. Any person who has mentored me in any way, they pick up on that in a hurry, and they, they have to just stay on me about that. 
And I, my personal devotion life, if I wasn't a pastor, I'm afraid I would be the worst reader of the Bible in the world. So in that sense, it works for my favor because I'm forced to do things I need to do. Then I'm afraid if I didn't have that accountability, I would not discipline myself to do those things I know I need to do. Y'all know what I'm talking about. We can all relate in some fashion or form. Well, I was talking to one of our elders a couple of years ago, Mike Peed, and we were talking about the little booklet Table Talk. It's a monthly journal produced by Ligonier Ministries. It's a devotional thing. It's got some articles, a different theme each month. <clears throat> and uh, he was telling me how he used that every morning. He'd get up. He's an early riser, and he would read from Table Talk, have a time of prayer. So I got remotivated. I ordered Table Talk and uh, re- resubscribed. Thought that would alleviate my guilt. <laughs> no. Well, so uh, I've let them kind of pile up. They've still got the, uh, the bag on them, you know, where you don't open them. So I said, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get this. I came off, we had a vacation, and, and all during the vacation, I'm thinking, when I get back on the weekend, I'm going to start into that. So I set up uh, a bedroom that one of our daughters, who's now married, moved away. That room's empty in our house. I said, I'm going to go in there. There's no com- computer to distract me. There's no projects. There's nothing, like in my home office. There's no work stuff. There's no memos. I'm going to go in there surrounded by girl stuff that I could care less about, you know, in these childhood books, and I'm just going to... So Monday morning I'm up, Tuesday morning I'm up, sweet time, you know, reading, reading from Philemon. That's the, that's the New Testament book this month and in the April edition of Table Talk and Christ in the Old Testament. Um, but then last night, uh, about 10.30, we have a special needs child and we had a medical emergency in our house. And he had an allergic reaction, and we didn't know if we were going to lose him. And I'm on the phone with the doctor at 11.15, and we're pumping Benadryl, you know, giving him all this and trying to – we didn't know if he could breathe. He's choking. and So we're up till 2. And then there was a meeting this morning. I missed my time. I missed my table talk 10 minutes. You know, I want to tell you where I feel good. I missed it. And I mean, I don't mean I just didn't do it. I mean, I miss it. I want to go home later on and go sit up there and do what I wish I'd done for, I had the opportunity to do first thing this morning. Couldn't get out of bed after we'd been up so late for I had to be at a meeting at First Presbyterian Day School. Anyway, so that's, that's not in my notes, but I thought I'd tell you. So it doesn't speak of perfect, a per, perfection, but a progression. We've got to tend to our own, our own uh, spiritual well-being. Uh, secondly, if we're to leave a lasting spiritual legacy, we have to be committed to one another. In other words, our closest relationships, if that's in the family or whatever shape your family's in, if you're married or, 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 or children at home or grown kids or what, whatever your situation, there has to be a commitment there. Now, I've, I've used this illustration, and you've read it. It's been used by every Bible teacher out there about a sociological study that was done in 1910. I did extra research on this this week to find out exactly who did this study and so forth. So I'm I'm going to give you the best account I have that I know is accurate. Some have exaggerated this to the point where it's really not accurate. These individuals had lived 200 years ago, but those doing a study wanted to trace their descendants to see how the legacies had come to work out in 200 years. The first person studied was a man named Max Jukes. Now, Max was a professional vagrant. He lived on the streets of New York City. As his family line was, was traced, they found that there were 310 professional street people 
44 people who found themselves in constant debauchery and wickedness. 130 people spent an average of 13 years in jail. There were seven murderers from his descendants, 100 alcoholics, 60 habitual thieves, 190 prostitutes, 20 men out of his whole ancestral line as of 1910. Only 20 had ever learned a trade, and 10 of them learned it in jail. Collectively, that family cost the state of New York $1.5 million. The next family chosen, the next person chosen, was Jonathan Edwards, the tremendous preacher and educator of the early 1700s. He and his wife, Sarah, had 11 children. As their family line was studied, from them came 100 lawyers, one dean of a law school, 80 holders of public office, 66 physicians, one dean of a medical school, 65 professors of colleges and universities, 30 judges, 13 college presidents, three mayors of large cities, three state governors, three U.S. senators, one comptroller of the United States, and one vice president of the United States. Now, if the Lord tarries, if the Lord tarries and someone studies your family line 200 years from now, what legacy would you like to leave? What would you like the influence to be? The seeds you sow today have an influence on that legacy. Third, I think if you and I are to leave a godly legacy, we must not give in to discouragement. And I say that because of verse 9. If you're looking still at the passage, it's interesting that on the heels of those thoughts about sowing and reaping, he says, let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we shall reap if we do not grow weary. You know what discouragement, to, to, to be discouraged, what it means? Literally, it means to abandon effort. To abandon the effort. It would be the farmer looking out and saying, I just, it ain't going to work. I'm just abandoning my efforts. Uh, here he's talking about abandoning the efforts of well-doing. And Paul is saying it, it requires constant, continued effort. But human nature often lacks staying power. We are so weak. We really are. We are a weak people. We are, our flesh is weak. Uh, our, we are fragile. Our, our emotional makeups are fragile. And sometimes it only takes a word and it just devastates us or a glance. And so we need to be encouraged. And we especially need to be encouraged when results are not always apparent at once. When those who you think you're trying to help refuse that, they refuse to cooperate. And when no reward ever seems to be coming. I mean, honestly, how many of you that have raised children ever had them look in your face and say, I just want to thank you for all you've done for me? If you've experienced that, and maybe some of you have, that is a rare blessing. Y'all ever heard that? No, I didn't. Yeah, okay. Um, but that's just, that's just the nature of the beast, isn't it? That's just the way it is. Now, I could go on and say, how many of you looked in the face of your mom or dad and said, I just want to thank you? <laughs> I don't think I ever did that. I don't think I ever did that. I just didn't think like that. I mean, you know, it's... Okay, I'm out of time, almost. I've got about one more minute. There's a bamboo that grows, it grows in China, it grows in Malaysia. It's an unusual type of bamboo, and it's got an extraordinary growth pattern. It, because you plant it, and you, you have a mound of dirt, you water 
fertilize it, do those kind of things, and nothing happens above ground for a year. Second year, you come back, you fertilize it, you water it, still nothing happens. Third year, you come back, you water it, so forth, you tend it, nothing has happened. Nothing has broken the ground, I mean, it's three years. The fourth year, you come back, and you water it, and you tend to it, and nothing happens. The fifth year, it grows 90 feet in 42 days. Now, I didn't make that up, folks. I read that on Wikipedia, so it's got to be true. (laughs) The first four years, it's developing a root system. And then in, in 42 days, it shoots up 90 feet, all based on that root system. So don't get discouraged. You and I are sowing seeds. We will leave a legacy. Now I want to leave this last quotation. As a young Christian, I opened up a book that Bill Bright had written called A Teacher's Guide to the the Ten Basic Steps to Christian Maturity. And it had a quotation that I wrote down in the front of a New Testament I had at that time. Since then, I've lost it. But I remember the quotation. But I don't trust my memory enough to say it to you, so I'm going to read it. (laughs) Here's what he said. Whether Christians or not, we will all have problems in this life. Whether Christians or not, we will all suffer and one day die. If I am to suffer and die in this life, then why not suffer and die for the highest and best, for the Lord Jesus Christ and for his glory? Let me lead us in prayer. Father, thank you that people sowed into our lives. We pray that we would live with our eye on the horizon of eternity We pray that by your power we might leave a legacy in the lives of others. We pray you'd help us to live for what counts forever uh, and to do what we do each day uh, for your honor and glory by the power of your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.